I will tell you that as I share this morning, I feel a little bit inadequate to share the message, not because of a lack of preparation. Actually, I have prepared as I feel like I should each week, but uh, some of what I'm going to share today, it's simply difficult to put into words. It's almost like John, as he records the book of Revelation, he's try, he tries to put into words things that are so beautiful and powerful that he has never seen. In fact, human eye, it's very difficult to be able to explain exactly how beautiful heaven will actually be like. He does the best that he can, but who knows if it's actually going to be anywhere close to that. The beauty of God is so overwhelming to us. And today I want to talk about something that perhaps is a little bit greater than even what we could understand. Although we can get glimpses of it within our society and culture, I think sometimes it's difficult to put into words the beauty and the power of God and what He has for us. Uh, My wife's grandfather was a great man. He was what you would call a country boy. He was raised in the South, yet he seemed to get along with everybody that he came into contact with. Among the things that he was most proud of was working at a PX store on a military base for several decades and the fact that he could make some amazing cornbread. I remember that his wife died a few years before he did. It was an odd time for him, especially as they had been married for most of their adult life. You're talking about over 50 years of marriage. How would he go on without his wife? I remember that following her death, he would go every single day to the cemetery to see his wife. He would care for the headstone and make sure that the flowers were fresh. Sometimes he would simply sit And he would talk to Dot. Now truthfully, I didn't really get it back then. I kind of saw this as something that was somewhat morbid. At the risk of sounding crude, my thought was, well, life must go on. But what I didn't understand was that while life goes on, his love for his bride does not simply die because she had died. His love for her remained strong long after death. He loved her in life, and he still loved her in death. This doesn't mean that their relationship was perfect, but it means that this man still found his delight within the bride of his youth. He could no longer receive a conversational response from his bride. He could no longer depend on her to help him with daily tasks. She would no longer train up their children, yet in her he still found delight. This is a beautiful image, and it's one that clearly reflects the love that God has for you and for me, for his church. And hopefully, This ought to help us to see God's love for us in a slightly different light, more intimate than we ever imagined his love to be before. You see, God's love is not something that is short-lived. It's not something that is short-sighted. It's not something that lasts for just a little while and then it fades into something less than beautiful and perfect. But it is a love that will continue on throughout all eternity. 
I think that most of us have probably heard a message regarding God's love for the church and his bride before, but it's primarily been based out of Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we read that husbands ought to love their wives just as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for the church so that she might become radiant and spotless without blemish. And while this is a great truth, there is so much more to look at than this. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 62, I read it to you earlier, verses 4 and 5. This passage is part of a song about the city of Zion, the place where the people of God would dwell. But just as a church is not merely the building in which we meet, but rather the people who make up the church, the city of Zion is not merely the dwelling place of God's people, but the people who make up the city. So listen to what it says, Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Let me just give a quick definition for two of the terms that are used here. Uh, the term Hephzibah would literally be, literally be translated, he takes delight in her. The name Beulah actually means married, which is why later on it says the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. Now, before I get into this passage, I do feel the need to address something very important. The last thing that I would want is for anyone, to hear, anyone here to get the idea that I'm trying to tell you that those who are single are somehow incomplete. The fact is that the Apostle Paul even declared that he wished everyone would stay single, just like he did. But the truth is that there are many people, like me, who simply need someone else to complete them. I'll just tell you that I'm not all that organized. I'm not all that smart. This is not a reflection on anybody else in this room today. I'm just aware that I am incomplete without a woman to take care of me and keep me from making really dumb decisions. I am very grateful for my wife. This passage bears witness to this. The, the terms that are used here are deserted and desolate. Both of these suggest a sense of loneliness and separation from the one that we love. Deserted suggests that others have left you to yourself while desolate suggests that you have brought this separation perhaps upon yourself. The fact is that it's kind of irrelevant as to why you're in this position. What matters is that you are alone. Again, some people prefer to be alone. Some do not. Still others have discovered that God's grace is sufficient for them, regardless of whether they are alone or they are with someone else. But looking back at God's initial act of creation, we see that Adam was incomplete without Eve. 
He needed a helper, someone to come alongside him and share life with him. It would seem that man was created for fellowship. Well, the truth is man was created for fellowship and not just fellowship man with woman. Fellowship is also something that God desires with us. Man was created for fellowship with God. Unfortunately, that original fellowship was broken by the presence of sin. And without that fellowship, we felt what it is to be deserted and desolate. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, as Josh shared last week, we were all born with a sinful nature. It's not as if you became sinful at some other point in your life where you told a lie or you committed adultery or you stole something or you had hatred in your heart. The fact is there was a sinful nature that you were born with. It is a natural byproduct of the sin which Adam and Eve participated in thousands of years ago. Every individual that has been born since then that has been born of a man and woman has been born with sin. It is a natural byproduct of it. According to Isaiah 59 verse 2, we read this, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That is an incredible consequence to the sin that has been committed. Remember that we were created for fellowship, and not just fellowship with everybody else, but fellowship with God. Yet the consequence of our sin, according to Isaiah 59, is our iniquities have separated us from God. We are deserted and desolate without that fellowship with God. Now, before I move on from this point, I need you to understand that while there are consequences and our sin does separate us from God, it does not have to stay that way. Remember the story of the prodigal son. By his own choice, he was separated from his father. He took his inheritance and he squandered it on women, alcohol, and about anything else that you could have imagined. And there's no doubt that it was good for a time. He enjoyed the sinful lifestyle. But one day he woke up and he realized that it wasn't enough. He had run out of money. His friends had left him. In essence, he was all alone Notice that he didn't try to figure out what can I do to get my friends back. He didn't try to relive the glory days of his sin. Instead, he longed for his father's presence once more. I guess he realized that he was simply better off with dad than with anything else he had ever experienced. So he returned to his father only to find a father who desperately longed for his son to return. Likewise, God desperately longs for his children to be reunited with him, for that fellowship that has been broken to be restored, for those who are deserted and desolate to no longer be deserted and desolate. 
We were created for fellowship with him. And he longs for that even today. So listen to this. Perhaps today you feel deserted and desolate. Maybe you've allowed sin to take a position of prominence in your life. God longs for you to return to him. In fact, he is inviting you to come to him right now, realizing that you will never be truly fulfilled by anything but him. I'm not saying you won't enjoy the sinful lifestyle. I'm not saying that it won't become something that you kind of long for down the road. But what I'm telling you is it will never satisfy you. The only thing that can truly satisfy you is Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. Perhaps you wonder why God would be so gracious to you in this. It's because he delights in you. The term Hephzibah, which I referenced earlier, would literally be translated, he delights in her. God loves you and he delights in you. You know, there's an interesting story of a husband who delighted in his wife back in the book of Genesis. It's actually a little bit strange, just to be completely honest with you, but it reflects the culture that existed in that time period. It's the story of Jacob, and it's found in Genesis chapter 29. I won't read the entire story to you because it's a relatively long story, but I do want to summarize it for you this morning. Jacob is a young man, and he comes across a beautiful young lady named Rachel. Now, She was actually related to him. Uh, Jacob's uncle is a man named Laban. Rachel is Laban's daughter. In that day and time, that was not all that unusual. It's kind of like living in West Virginia, Kentucky, that kind of thing. Sorry. If you're from those places, please don't take offense. Sorry, I'm just having fun. Anyways, he goes to Rachel's father, Laban, and they work out a deal. He wants immediately, he knows that's the girl that I want to marry. So he talks with Laban's father, and the deal is this. If Jacob will work for seven years tending Laban's animals, his flock, then he can marry Laban's daughter. Well, Jacob is so in love with Rachel, there is no hesitation. He immediately says, yes, I'll do it. Actually, if we look in Genesis 29, verse 20, it says that it seemed like only a few days that he worked, even though he worked seven years. And the reason was, man, it was worth it to him because he knew from the very beginning, this was the woman that I love and this is the woman that I want to marry. Seven years pass, but Laban pulls a fast one on Jacob. Especially appropriate when we look at the deceit and trickery which Jacob had already participated in earlier in his life with his brother Esau. He had stolen the birthright that was intended for his brother. Laban throws a great celebration feast to officially give his daughter to Jacob. But he apparently gets Jacob drunk somewhere in the process. It doesn't actually use that phrase, but that's the only logical explanation that I can see in this. Then instead of giving Rachel as his bride, Laban sends his older, less attractive daughter in. She's described as having weak eyes. We're not exactly sure what that reference is, but what it tells me is Jacob saw something in Rachel that he longed for, and he loved this girl, and he wanted her to be his bride. 
Leah was not on his agenda. He wanted to be married to Rachel. Jacob, apparently too drunk to notice, goes in and has a sexual relationship with her. And the next morning realizes he's been tricked. The end result was that Jacob would eventually end up married to more than one woman. As the story would progress, Laban would admit that he had done this, but he did it because there was an older daughter and she had to be taken care of first. And basically, Laban would also give Rachel to be the wife of Jacob. This would become one of the saddest yet most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. It is sad for Leah. She wanted so much to be loved by her husband, yet he never truly loved her. God would bless her with multiple children. Each time she gave birth, she would express her hope that perhaps now my husband will love me. But it never happened, even though Rachel early on was unable to bear children. Rachel, she is a part of the beautiful story that is present. She's unable to bear children for most of their marriage, yet Jacob didn't care. He delighted in her regardless of what she could do for him. Their marriage was a beautiful image of what a loving relationship ought to look like. If she can do something wonderful, but if she can't, it doesn't matter. I love her anyways. She's beautiful. She is everything that I've ever wanted. She is the one that I delight in. What I want you to see here is that God does not love you the way Jacob loved Leah. He loves you the way Jacob loved Rachel. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. Do you know why he did that? It's because he loved you. It's not one of those things where somehow you became beautiful enough, and now he loves you. It wasn't as if somehow you earned his love, and now he can really love you. Before creation even began, God had a love for you that we cannot truly understand even here in this lifetime. Truth is, we have a God who loves us passionately. It has always been God's plan to redeem you. God has always loved you more than you deserved. He has always longed for fellowship with you. Just like Jacob longed for fellowship and love with Rachel. You are God's delight. But you know, as we seek to find fulfillment we will at some point realize the need for a two-way street. His love is being extended continually, and it's not a question. It's going to be there. We are told very clearly that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is not a doubt in my mind, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, He will always love you. That is not in question at all. The problem is that for many of us, we like to receive love, 
but we don't necessarily go out of the way to give it back. If we are to experience true fulfillment in a relationship, it cannot be a one-way street of love. Far too many marriages experience this. A wife loves her husband dearly, and the husband enjoys what he's experiencing, but may not truly love his wife. Same thing happens the other way around. The husband loves his wife, and he would do anything for his wife, but the wife may not reciprocate that love on a continual basis. Tell you the truth, it's not much fun if only one side of the equation is truly loving. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that a marriage works best when both parties do their part. We read this in Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 27. I want to read it to you. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." We like to focus on specific instructions that are given in this passage. Most men like to point out to their wives that they are called to submit to their husbands. Perhaps you even nudged the person beside you when I read that this morning. Or maybe there was a little smirk or a grin or thinking, I wish my wife was listening to this today. It's almost a dirty concept in our modern culture, the idea of submitting to another. But that's exactly what the scripture calls for. But do you know that it still has to be a two-way street? It's not enough that a woman would submit to her husband. The husband must also love his wife, just as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He loved the church so much that he was willing to sacrifice himself for her well-being. Now, I know that this is a no-brainer here, but wives, if your husband truly loved you so much that he would give everything of himself for your well-being, is it really that hard to submit to someone who loves you like that? The answer is no, because you know that his desire is that you be made whole. It's not about him enjoying the pleasures of himself, but he wants to see you be made whole and perfect without blemish. So everything that he does is intended for your benefit. Man, it's not hard to submit to that. But what happens so often is we want the other one to do certain things. When in reality, together, we both have this responsibility and we have this calling. Can you imagine a marriage like that? A wife who submits to her husband, a husband who loves his wife unconditionally, even being willing to sacrifice himself for her. 
Well, that's the way it's actually supposed to be. You know, God uses marriage as a tool to represent the loving relationship he offers to us. It is God's desire that we would understand his love much like what we see here. This idea of a husband who would sacrifice himself, it's derived from the model that we have in Jesus himself. Jesus laid down his life for us, not because he had to, not because he was looking for something for himself. He did it because he loved you and he loved me. Man, that's an incredible gift to us. I think sometimes we talk about the love that God has for us, but rarely do we truly understand what that means. Part of it's because we've been looking at it through the lens of what we've seen love look like from other people. Other people, sometimes when they say they love us, it may not materialize in actions and attitudes and hearts. But in the model we see here, God has demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, before we had the opportunity to ever prove ourselves or to deserve anything, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is an amazing kind of love. And it's a love that we will never deserve, but it is a love that will never be withdrawn. It doesn't mean that there won't be accountability. It doesn't mean that God won't punish those who choose to walk away from his love. He will never force his love upon anyone, but his love will be extended to everyone. Earlier on in this message, I talked about those who have been deserted and desolate. Those who have not been walking in fellowship with God. And I very clearly stated to you that it does not have to stay that way. I want you to know today that God's love, this kind of unconditional, limitless love, is being extended to you today. But in order for you to experience it, you must respond to the grace that he has extended. His love is there and he says, I want fellowship with you. But back to that passage in Isaiah. Our sin, our iniquity causes separation from him. Do you want to experience that love intimately as it was intended all along? If the answer is yes, it is time that we repent of our sin and we choose to walk as new creations in him. His love is there. The question is whether we will walk in it or not. I'm going to ask everyone if you bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. Sending your son to die for us and giving us the opportunity to be redeemed and to be brought back into fellowship with you. We recognize that sin has been a problem. It's something that we have chosen to participate in. We are born with that sinful nature, but each of us has fallen short. There have been times that we have walked into sin knowing that what we are doing is absolutely wrong. 
We have allowed sin to not just be something that hangs over us, but something that has reigned in us. And right now we come before you and we ask that you would forgive us of our sins. That you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that you would once again reintroduce us to the love that you extend to us. Lord, I pray for each individual that is here. Maybe today they don't feel all that loved. Maybe they feel broken, deserted, desolate. Lord, I pray that today we would experience your love like we never have before. I pray that you would fill us. Pray that you would work in us. Make your presence so real to us that no matter where we go, no matter who we're around, we would recognize the love of God being poured out to us over and over and over again. But we come before you today knowing that you have promised us that if we will confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us of our, our sins. And it's because you love us. Forgive us today. Fill us with your spirit and make us new. As we progress through this year, as we use the family, as we recognize that the family is your symbol of a relationship with us, Lord, I pray that you would be honored. Help us to truly know you better than we did before. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Today actually was the beginning of a new series entitled The DNA of the Church. And the very first part of this is so important. God is the one who makes all of this possible. His love for us is what makes everything that we look at in the next basically five weeks now. His love for us is what makes everything else possible. He is the centerpiece of our faith. If you do not yet know Christ, maybe today you felt convicted and you feel like, man, I don't, I'm de deserted, I'm desolate, I need the Holy Spirit in my life, I need to know the presence of God, I need to know His love like I never have before. A lot of times I'll invite people to come to the front. Actually, what I want to do today is, if you're in that category, I invite you to come and talk with me afterwards. I would love to be able to talk with you, to share with you what it's like, and basically how you can experience that love in a very personal and real way. This is more than just an act that we put together for church. It's not something that you'll look back and say that I went to an altar, but this is, this is the moment in time where you say, God, I want that relationship with God to be central in my life. I believe God will give that to you. I would love to talk and be able to pray with you if you're in that category. I do thank each of you for being with us this morning. I invite you if you would like. We have Sunday school that starts in about 15 minutes, and we'd love to have you join us for that. I thank you for being with us today. Go in peace.